chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And uh, after I read the passage, I'd like to ask him right time to pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the tax. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we come before you acknowledging that there is but one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would own no other, for he alone is able to make this way that we have access to your throne, that we have ability to hear the truth and to understand it. Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to us. And we ask that your spirit would be at work in your people this day to enable our hearts to receive the word, to digest it and understand it, to make it active in our lives. Father, we give you thanks and praise for setting apart men who are devoting themselves to the Word, to the ministry, to bring out of the storehouse of Scripture treasures both new and old. And Father, we ask that you would, by that same Spirit, empower your preacher this morning to deliver that Word in your power, in your truth, that we may hear and understand. And we ask these things in the name of our most holy Lord, Jesus Christ. Many years ago, mid to late 90s, our church bequeathed or inherited a, an inner city ministry, a ministry that was um, started by a church that was meeting down at what is now Mills Mill. The church disbanded, and um, by the grace of God, uh, the, the ministry for the inner city youth fell upon our church. And um, with the boldness of ignorance, we rushed in. And uh, we bought a house on uh, Seth Street, and we renovated that house to be a center for uh, after-school after ministry, and um, providing meals and tutoring, and, and uh, also preaching on Sundays and whatnot. But as we were renovating that house, we were also trying to get other churches involved since we were a small church. And uh, one church, uh, somehow they were in North Carolina, I believe, and they heard about us, and they happened to have a, a number of members who ran a sheetrocking crew. And, and so they agreed to come and put up all of the sheetrock and, uh, and, and do all of that for us. And, and they did it all in a day, which was quite remarkable. Uh, you didn't want to get in their way, or you would end up in the wall like some Edgar Allan Poe novel. But we were, they were, we were breaking for lunch, and uh, we were talking about their church. And I asked if any of the men was the pastor. 
Uh, the scorn and derision that came out of the men was, was quite remarkable. So remarkable that I didn't tell them what I was. Um, but their comment was, oh, you'd never see him out working. Now, I didn't say anything, fortunately. You know, when you don't know what to say, it's always best to say nothing. And I didn't say anything. But I did think a lot. And, and I have to confess that I thought ill of that man. With the remove of, what, almost 20 years now. I can't say whether that man was right or wrong, but I can't say that I was wrong. And that perhaps the men who were deriding this uh, pastor were themselves in the wrong. Now, again, I don't know what kind of pastor this man was, but um, he didn't go out and he didn't work. He didn't sweat. He didn't do the work of the deacons. Hopefully, he did the work of an elder. Uh, but we don't live in a day anymore of the study-bound pastor. It's in disrepute. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was said to have spent 13 hours a day in his study. If you read any of his sermons, you can, you can easily see why. Um, that's what pastors were expected to do. Now, we live in a day where, where uh, pastors are supposed to be basically the do-it-all pastor. And involved in everything that the church does. Um, if you say that you are Jonathan Edwards and that you spend all of your time studying, most churches will find you to be out of touch. And they will actually uh, hold you in disrepute for spending so much time. We're not going out and installing sheetrock. How many women spend hours in the kitchen to feed their families? But sadly, that's also in disrepute these days as well, is it not? But the elders or the apostles, remember Peter considered himself in his own letter to be an elder. The elders of the church of, of Jerusalem, namely the apostles, were themselves uh, responsible for the the distribution of money and of food to the needy. We read in, in chapter 4 that all who possessed lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed them to each as anyone had need. And so the twelve were themselves responsible for the benevolence ministry within the community. But they were failing at their task. There arose a complaint, literally a murmuring. A murmuring, and I have also, in our study of Acts, drawn parallels between the early church and the early gathering of Israel in the wilderness and of Mount Sinai. And the word we find here in the Greek for the, for the congregation is actually the same word we find in the Greek Old Testament for the children of Israel under Moses. They were murmuring against the Hebrews. But the murmuring of the Hebrews against the uh, hell, or the, by the Hellenists against the Hebrews was directed at the Hebrew widows, but it was actually aimed at the apostles. And that is often the case where people do not feel themselves uh, empowered enough to raise a complaint against the leadership. And so the discord arises within the ranks. But really the problem is not so much with the Hebrew widows as it was with the apostles. Now, just a, a, a little background. What is called the Hebraoi in the Greek were Palestinians in birth. These were women who were born and raised in Judea. 
And they were traditionalists. Basically, they, they generally spoke Aramaic. And they generally disdained the, the, uh, the Greek influence that had come into Palestine since the days of Alexander the Great. The Hellenists, or the Hellenista, they were themselves often immigrants. People who had come back to Judea from the diaspora. And they had, or they may have been, they had been grown up in Judea. But they had adopted Greek ways of living and, more importantly, the Greek language. So there was a language barrier here. Aramaic and Greek. But it's very important to point out as you read this, and you may say, okay, Hellenistic, well that, that's Greek. These were all Jews. Some of your Bibles might actually have the word Jews in verse 1 in italics, next to the word Hellenists. Because you might be mistaken in thinking that these were actually Gentiles. But they were not. These were Jews. Murmuring against Jews about the distribution of the alms and the benevolence. Widows. Now we talked a little bit in Sunday school today about the practice of being ex-synagogued. Ex-communicated as we would call it now. When a Jew accepted Jesus as his or her Messiah... They were cast out not only of their family and of the synagogue, but of society itself. They were not able to make a living. And the widows among them, who were universally the, the most vulnerable in ancient society, were made even more so by the removal of the support structure of their family and of their synagogue. And so we see a principle happening here from the very beginning without any discussion among the apostles or any edict from God, and that is that the church took care of its own. We're going to see that again as you go through the letters of Paul, especially to Titus and to Timothy, that it is the responsibility of the church to take care of its own. But in this taking care of the widows of the church, the apostles were, were failing. They were not getting it right. And so... The complaint that the Hellenistic Jews raise has to do with the daily ministrations, the literal word, the daily ministrations. The word is diakonia. It's the word in the Greek from which we get the diaconate, a word that we don't use all that often, but it's basically deacons. And so this is the first mention in the church of the establishment of a diaconate. The apostles themselves were failing as deacons. Now I want to point out that when they say in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word, that word is diaconia. Okay, that word is diaconia. It basically is just the word service. Okay, so what was happening is the apostles were attempting to minister in the word and to minister in the flesh. And they were not able to do it all. And so they were forced to make a choice. One author says it is not suggested that the oversight was deliberate. More probably, the cause was poor administration or supervision. Now, I think he's being a little bit more gracious than perhaps he ought. If it had been the other way, maybe we could say, yeah, it was just a, it was just a misfortunate oversight of administration. But the apostles themselves were mostly from Galilee. And as far as we can tell, they were mostly traditionalists. They were mostly Hebraic. We already know from Paul's writings that even Peter 
could be guilty of, of being a little bit prejudiced, could he not? When he was in Antioch and he would eat with the, the Jews and the Gentiles, and then some came from James and Jerusalem, and Peter withdrew. No longer eating, no longer having table fellowship with the Gentiles. We need to be careful that we don't deify the apostles. We need to be careful that we don't, as we read through Acts and, and the letters of Paul, that we don't somehow elevate these men as being so fully sanctified that they were incapable of sin. What that does, when we have that attitude, which is very easy to do, is it makes what they do unattainable by us, does it not? And we say, oh, that was Paul. Oh, that was Peter. He, he walked on water. He also nearly drowned, folks. You know, he, they were fallible. They were, they were weak. They were human. They were susceptible to prejudice. And there was in Second Temple Judea a bitterness among the Jews toward their own brethren who had adopted the Greek ways. We talked about the difference between the, the, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Well, it was the Sadducees that basically adopted the ways of the Greeks. And the Pharisees who more ardently held to the traditions of the fathers, to the language and to the law. And so within the church, there was still that tension that existed outside in the society around them. Is that not true in our own churches? Why are our churches so frequently homogenous? Why are they usually one color or another? One ethnicity or another? Why is it that, that only the only churches that are able to maintain some sort of, of blending among believers are churches that have actually, by and large, rejected doctrine? What's, what's going on here? Do we have prejudice in our own hearts? Are we going to be the mighty white? No, I don't know what it would take because, frankly, black churches are the same way. They're almost entirely black. Hispanic churches are almost entirely Hispanic. Now, of course, that's a language thing. And yet we're all, not Jews, as these were, we're all Christians. And we would admit that they are Christians. <clears throat> I guess what we can learn from this is that if by God's grace we are blessed with brethren of different ethnicity and different skin color, that we would not murmur. That we would show no favoritism. That we would understand that we are all the same in Jesus Christ. That there is no distinction. But even here in the early church, we are, we are blessed to learn that our founding fathers, as it were, were also fallible. They were men such as we are. And so we can still learn from them and even from their mistakes. But the apostles' response to their credit was neither defensive nor punitive. They didn't react defensively, as, as is so easy to do in leadership. Oh, you all don't understand. You don't know how hard it is. Or punitively, oh, well, we'll just stop altogether. We'll invest our money in a mutual fund. Okay? No more alms for the poor. No more benevolence. If you're going to complain about it, then we're just not going to do it. None of that. Because it was ingrained from the law of God. And from the nature of God, whose heart was always toward the orphan and the widow and the alien, those three classes that were the most vulnerable in ancient society were the ones that repeatedly are mentioned by God as His special wards. And so the church adopted the mind of God in the very beginning and took care of its own. It didn't say to the widows, 
Well, we'll go down to the Department of Social Services down, you know, downtown and apply for welfare. No, it didn't say that. It, rather, the apostles seeking the wisdom from God established a critical component of every Christian church, the diaconate. Deacons. Now, deacons aren't really talked about much in our church. Sometimes they're talked about too much in other churches. But hopefully from, from this chapter, we can, we can glean some understanding from Scripture as to what a deacon is, what type of a man he should be. Now, from other passages, I could add woman, but I won't, but I just did. <laughs> but today we're talking about deacons, and we're talking about men. We read in verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples. Now, just a little side note, there's a lot of debate as to who the twelfth apostle was, right? It's kind of a silly debate, but everybody, there's a lot of people want to say Paul was the twelfth apostle, but Paul wasn't in here yet. And so basically Luke is giving us the answer here. Matthias was the twelfth apostle. Okay? He didn't say the eleven and Matthias. He said the twelve. Uh, went and they commissioned the congregation to find men. Now the problem was not mere administration. Even though the word derives from the same word, diakonia. This wasn't just a, an administrative problem. You know, let's just find someone who's got a, a good organizational ability. Okay? Now that, that wasn't what they did. They said, okay, I want you to select seven men. Now I'm not going to go on to the number seven. Seven was actually a common number, obviously. And within the synagogue, there are some reports that the number of the administrators was typically seven. But that would largely depend on the size of the synagogue. Okay? So wherever the number seven comes from, the apostle said these need to be men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. In other words, not good businessmen in your congregation. Not yet those who are retired and have time on their hands. Nor the handymen who are able to fix toilets. Now, I say those because frankly, in my experience, those are the primary criteria for selecting deacons in the modern church. Oh, well, he runs a small business. He must be a good you know, administrator. Hey, you don't know that. You better look at his books. <laughs> oh, he's retired. He's got plenty of time. Let him do it. Oh, this guy, he can fix anything. We can make him a deacon. No. Men of good reputation, men who are full of the Spirit, and men who are full of wisdom. Criteria for the deacon is basically the same as for the elder, except one thing. He is not required to be apt to teach. Paul writes, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. How many deacons in churches today can even give an adequate account of the faith? How many churches today choose their deacons, men full of the Spirit and of wisdom? Are there enough such men in most churches that even seven could be chosen? In my experience, and I have been in this church for almost 30 years, so it doesn't really include that, but prior to that, the churches that we attended, the deacons were basically chosen on a rotational basis because none would serve permanently. They would not accept that type of commitment to the body of Christ. 
So they would serve on a turn basis, and they were basically selected on the basis of their skills in the world. They were not required to be able to defend the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. They were not given any type of examination as you might give for an elder, for a pastor. In other words, it was not required of them to be knowledgeable of the Word of God. That hasn't done the church much good. Because we have failed to realize that this type of service is actually a spiritual gift to the church. And it is vital to her health and her growth. And therefore, when we consider men who are to be deacons, we, we cannot go astray, or we cannot go to the point where we ignore the criteria of Scripture and look rather at the skills and the reputation or the, the abilities of men out in the world. No, today we need men who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Men who are able to defend the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. The man who was instrumental in being, bringing Charles Spurgeon to the Lord, though the Spirit had been working on his heart according to his autobiography. He went to church one evening and due to a snowstorm, the pastor didn't make it. And so a man got up into the pulpit and read from Isaiah and exhorted the congregation. He was a deacon. His passage was, Look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And the Lord used that passage and that deacon to bring Charles Spurgeon to himself. There was a man who was able to step up into the pulpit. Not that he was apt to teach, not that he was a great speaker, but I will say from the examples that we're going to find here in Acts chapter 6, that although apt to teach is not a requirement, neither is it excluded. A deacon can also be apt to teach. But whether he teaches or not, he must know the faith and be able to defend it with a pure conscience. When I graduated from college with a degree in chemical engineering, I took an examination so that I would be called an engineer in training. Well, that sounds kind of silly after four years of college, but it gives you the indication of industry's opinion of a college degree. It's worthless. For five years, you are an EIT, an engineer in training, after which you can take another examination and become a professional engineer, at which case you can actually testify in court and we'll listen to you. Okay? So an EIT, well I use that as an example for most people's understanding of a deacon. He's an elder in training. He's on the on-deck circle. Now that may be the case, but if it is the case, it's because the congregation and the leadership at that time misunderstood the man's gifts. Because we're actually dealing with two different categories of giftedness here. The word is the same, diakonia, service, ministry. But there are two different kinds of gifts. There are many different gifts that Paul talks about in Romans and in Ephesians and in Corinthians. But there are two categories of gifts that Peter speaks of in his first epistle, chapter 4. He says, as each one has received a gift, Employ it as serving one another. Okay, there's that word. Diokonia. As each one has received a gift, employ it as serving one another. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength that God supplies. There are your two. Mouth 
and hand. Speaking and doing. Ministry of the Word, ministry to the body. Elder, deacon. Very simple designation. The church took a little while to, to discover it. Not very long. Uh, but the Lord, and I think this is fairly significant, the Lord didn't actually tell them to do this. So Jesus did not say, and you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will establish elders, and you will establish deacons. He didn't say that. The necessity arose, and God gave them the wisdom to meet the needs. But I think it's incredibly important, and it has always been the pattern and the hope of our congregation, that the men and the women who meet those needs are chosen from among the congregation. Now, we would never think of hiring out for deacons. I don't think I've ever seen an advertisement for deacons in a Christian magazine. But we do that for pastors all the time. Even though elders were also chosen from among the people. Paul's instructions to Titus. Chosen from among. Paul's words to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. That God chose you from among to be overseers. God has given up the, all of the gifts necessary for the health and growth of the body. And then He provides the needs, the situations, wherein those gifts are manifested. It is the responsibility of the leadership and of the congregation. See how they work together in this passage? It wasn't an edict from the apostles. If anybody could, it was them. But they said, no. Why, why not? Well, because these men were going to be ministering to the congregation. And therefore, the congregation needed to trust them. Needed to believe that what they were doing was equitable and fair. Needed to believe that their decisions were wise and could be followed. And so the apostles wisely said, choose from among you. Well, elders are called shepherds. They are the under-shepherds. And one thing that is required of a shepherd is that the sheep hear his voice. Jesus himself said, my sheep will not listen to another. They hear my voice. Now if they hear the voice of the chief shepherd, should they also not hear the voice of the under-shepherds? And yet what we do and what we've done now for centuries, for millennia, is we bring in a stranger. We have him preach a couple of times. We look at his resume. We hire him. No, we don't. I'm sorry. We call him. Because that's a more sanctified way of saying it. We call him to the ministry in our church. And we call him our pastor. And then we're shocked when it doesn't work out. Shouldn't be that way. The elders looked to the congregation and God had already provided. Right? It says in verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. That happened to us once. <laughs> the elders had an idea and everybody agreed with it. <laughs> the statement found approval and they chose Stephen and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Now two of them you're going to hear about again. Stephen and Philip. And this is kind of proof that the, the, the division of giftedness between those who speak and those who serve it is not an ironclad. Or it may be that the congregation looked at Stephen and Philip and recognized them to be men full of the Spirit, strong in the faith, full of wisdom, but misunderstood their giftedness too. 
Because we will find Stephen very quickly debating with the unbelieving Jews. And not a man could withstand his logic, the strength of his argument. Philip will find to be an evangelist. Okay? So the gifts of God are, are not rigidly categorized. So I don't want to be misunderstood there. Though there are broad categories, any person can have multiple gifts. But there are those two sets of gifts that are necessary for the health and the growth of the church. And that's what I want to point out. So here are the magnificent seven. You all remember the movie? I think they tried to remake it. If you printers in the movie, don't remake it. Okay? All right. Well, we hear of Stephen and Philip, but then we don't hear of the others. Except perhaps for one. Nicholas. Literally, it's uh, Nicolaus, which means conqueror of the people. I don't know if that's a good name for a deacon, but... In Revelation chapter 2, we read this regarding the church at Ephesus. The Lord says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Early on in the church history, there arose a Gnostic antinomian sect known as the Nicolaitans. These were professing believers who denied the application of God's law to their lives entirely. They also believed they could do and must do in the flesh all that they desired to do. Because of the Greek notion that matter was evil and only good was spirit, the flesh was to be abused. Now by abuse, the church usually meant it was to be denied its sinful pleasures. But the Nicolaitans said, no, it is to be indulged, because by indulging it will be destroyed. Rather odd logic. And, and so they participated in all manner of wickedness under the guise of the name of Jesus Christ. You can understand why the Lord himself says, I also hate them. And he, was, he honored those who hated the Nicolaitans. Well, the earliest tradition in the church as to the origin of the Nicolaitans is Nicholas. Here in chapter 6. Verse 5. There's no proof of that. There's no biblical record that says the Nicolaitans came from Nicholas who was chosen as one of the first deacons. And so it may not be the case. It may not actually be that Nicholas the deacon was the founder of the Gnostic sect of the Nicolaitans. But it was accepted very early on that that was the case. And so it should not be discounted as many modern scholars do, just because the history of it is very old. Whether it is so or not, it does show one thing, and that is the church can make mistakes. That men can show the appearance of godliness, of righteousness, and of true faith. In other words, their, their, their shoot may grow up and look very healthy, but it may be that when the sun of persecution comes out, they wither and die. Only, only God knows the heart. So when we do perform the ordinances and the administrations of the church, we must understand that we do the best we know how. Seeking the wisdom of God and following the guidelines of Scripture, but that we are not infallible. 
Now, the reason I raise this, besides the interesting fact that the Nicolaitans may have come from Nicholas, is that many of us as Protestants have been wondering over the years why the Roman Catholic Church has so much trouble owning up to the issue of pedophilia and abuse among the priesthood. Why they cover it up? Why they move priests from place to place? Why those priests become bishops, those bishops become cardinals? What is it about? I mean, they did something terrible. And the Roman Catholic authority agrees this is terrible. But they seem to have an inability to actually punish it. And the reason they do so is because of their sacrament of ordination. One of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And it is taught that two of the sacraments are indelible. Meaning they cannot be erased. Baptism and ordination. They teach that when they ordain a man to the ministry, they are giving him an indelible grace. Or in the words of C.S. Lewis, once a priest in Narnia, always a priest in Narnia. Okay, once a priest in Rome, always a priest in Rome. You see, they are, because of their own doctrine, their own error, they have rendered themselves incapable of punishing their Nicholases. Nicolai. You see the, the problem? I, I'm not exonerating, believe me. It's, it's wrong that begets a further wrong. It's error that begets falsehood, that begets tragedy. Instead of men being punished, they are promoted because they have been given an indelible grace. It's as if the elders and the apostles and laying hands on the deacons were making them sacrosanct, incapable of error, always deacons, never to be disciplined. That's not true of anybody in the church. We know that it is even legal and appropriate to level a charge against an elder. Because we're told that it must be done with two or three witnesses. Okay, we're told how it's done, and therefore it may be done. And if it may be done, it is because that man is not infallible. That man has not received an indelible grace. That man is capable of error, and therefore susceptible to discipline. And perhaps, maybe the church, early church fell into the same error as Rome. And when Nicholas began to teach his error, maybe they failed to discipline him. Or maybe they put him out. Which is why the Nicolaitans became a sect and not part of the body of Christ. Maybe they did do what they needed to do. And recognize that even though the, the apostles had laid hands on this man, he was in error. Rome is wrong. And it's, and it's trying to preserve its wrongness with a falsehood. And it can't get out. So when you hear, when you read, when, when you listen to the Pope or this or that bishop or cardinal evading the issue, trying to apologize but never dealing with the issue, perhaps now you understand why. They can't. They really can't. Unless they admit that their system is wrong. That they can't do. <coughs> we see here the church taking shape. And that's one of the reasons I view chapter 6 as the beginning of a transition. It's going to introduce to us Stephen, just has. Stephen, of course, is going to be a, a very powerful evangelist. Stephen is going to be the church's first recorded martyr. And that martyrdom is going to be witnessed by Saul, 
who may have been in the picture a little earlier in the Sanhedrin, but then the rest of Luke's record is going to basically take up the thread of Saul becoming Paul. So it's a transitional passage, Acts chapter 6, but it also shows us the church taking shape. Not by divine decree, but rather through divine wisdom. Elders, also referred to as overseers or bishops. This would have been very familiar to the Jews because the synagogues were governed that way. The Jewish elders were the rulers of the synagogue. And then deacons, recognizing the needs of the body and depending upon God to provide the gifts necessary to meet the needs. That, I think, is the attitude the church should always have. When we recognize the need, which means we don't necessarily go out looking for them. Many churches do that. They come up with the need they want to address and go out looking for it. That doesn't seem right to me. It seems rather foolish to me, actually. And it also seems a bit um, arrogant. Oh, I have the gift of whatever, and therefore I will build my ministry. And that's what happens. Most of our larger churches are just people who have their own ministries, independently of the church. But rather what we see here is that God brings to our attention the needs and then shows us that He has already provided the gift to meet that need. And I believe that as we've talked briefly and occasionally and necessarily about the transition that must take place from our current elders to our future elders, that there are and will be the men within this congregation to be those elders. As we look around us at the needs that this building and this body will have and has had, the gifts and the people with those gifts are here in our midst. So it, it counsels us to, to understand the dynamics of Christ's body. That just as our body, as Paul says, has what it takes, and it is amazing. Medical science has, has re- frequently marveled at the self-healing capability of the human body. And sometimes that self-healing capability is actually interfered with by pharmaceutical medicines. Okay, Man actually gets in the way when what we should be doing is augmenting that. The body of Christ is self-healing. It is self-providing. St. Paul says, what every joint and ligament provides for the building up of the whole body. We don't have to buy prosthetics. We don't have to go out on the market and find artificial parts to the body. God knows our needs. And even before the need arises, He will have provided the solution. What we need, what the apostles needed, was wisdom. Wisdom to find. And then we see, very shortly after this, bishops and deacons as a standard administration as a standard division of authority within the church. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, in chapter 1, verse 1, says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. The, the word overseer in the Greek is episkopos, from which we get the word bishop. The bishops and the deacons. The elders and the deacons. We recognize elders. In our church, that is the form of government that is enshrined in our church constitution and we believe to be biblical. 
It follows a biblical example. Now, I have been told over the years that elder government is merely one way to do it. Well, yeah, you're right. But because it seems to be the way that the apostles instructed the early church, we think it's the right way to do it. Or at least the best way to do it. To do it any other way would be to say that our wisdom is greater than that of Scripture. It might work, but it wouldn't be right. Deacons, however, we've never been able to quite get that here. We have deacons. And in fact, I would say that in the current day, our back, and it is stronger than it's ever been. That things get done around the church that I don't know about until they're done. That's the back of it. That, that's, that's wonderful. There is an understanding in the congregation that was lacking many years ago. That the elders are to devote their attention to the ministry of word and to prayer. Now, the congregation is to be the judge of that. If the elders are not deepening, are they elderly? If they are not devoting their time to the ministry of the hand, are they feeding the congregation with the ministry of the mouth? See, this is where I can't judge that pastor many years ago. He may have been on the golf course for all I know. I don't know that he spent that time in his study. I don't know that he was not feeding his flock faithfully from the Word of God. I don't know but that the sheep rockers themselves were to blame. That they didn't appreciate the teaching that they were receiving. Because perhaps even they themselves were not believers. So I don't know that dynamic. But it can be that there is a, a minister, a pastor, or a pastoral staff... That while they do not spend their time doing the work of the deacons, neither do they spend their time doing the work of the elders. And so the final judgment comes down to the congregation. With regard to the elders of your church now and in the future, if this church is going to preserve its, by God's grace, characteristic of being devoted to God's Word, it requires men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, apt to teach, who will not be distracted with the physical ministry of the church, but who will rather devote their time to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. That church will keep its candlestick. That church will be well fed. Paul said, or Luke writes with regard to this, and the Word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. That is the result when we do things God's way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the wisdom that is manifested in your word. And we thank you for the way in which it is manifested. Rather than giving us a list of instructions, you show us your people in life. You show us their needs. And then you show us how you have already provided for that need. You show us how they themselves come to the recognition of their needs and seek your wisdom to find the solution. And so, Father, we desire to be of the same mind. That we would have our eyes open and our ears open and our hearts open to see the needs that you will undoubtedly bring before us. But then to look within our own body that you might give us wisdom to find the solution, the giftedness that you have already given, whether it be for the ministry of the Word or the ministry of tables. 
so that your church here at Fellowship Bible Church might see the Word of God go forth in power and that the number of disciples might greatly increase for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the benediction from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.